Hello and welcome to Maiden Mother Matriarch with me, Louise Perry. My guest this week is Justin Brearley. Still audio only just for the time being, but I do have an announcement coming shortly about the future of the podcast, so stay tuned. But audio only for the time being. Uh, Justin is a, a writer, a broadcaster and the author of a new book, The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God, Why New Atheism Grew Old and Secular Thinkers Are Considering Christianity Again. We spoke about the rise and fall of new atheism, why new atheism hasn't turned out quite as well as many of its proponents hope for, the role of religion in politics, and in the extended version, we also spoke about the relationship between new atheism and other religions, particularly Islam. That extended version of the podcast is available at louiseperry.substack.com, where you can also find bonus episodes and the MLM chat community. Enjoy. So Justin, for anyone listening who uh, was uh, too young or not paying attention at the time, um, how how would you characterise the new atheism movement? What do we mean when we say new atheism? Well, it's old atheism, but with a bit of a new gloss in as much as it was far more in your face. It was a very kind of media savvy form of atheism. Uh, it was, in a sense, it rode the wave of the internet. And uh, it enabled lots of disparate groups to get together and feel like they were a collective movement for a good while. Um, and it, it was just a, a lot more dogmatic in tone, I think, than previous forms of atheism had been fronted essentially by four characters uh, who came to be dubbed the horsemen of new atheism. Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris and Daniel Dennett. And each of them in their way had a best selling anti-God, anti-religion book. Um, and for a while, there was this mini publishing boom in, you know, atheist anti-God literature, which was completely new in a way, but, you know, was there for a while. And I guess it kind of all culminated as well in the fact that there was an increased sort of sense of animosity towards forms of fundamentalist religion, especially in the wake of 9-11. Um, and in a way, uh, it you saw the closest thing you had ever had to atheist advertising campaigns. You know, in London, we had the so-called atheist bus campaign there's probably no god now stop worrying and enjoy your life in in the u.s they had the reason rally which was a kind of gathering of tens of thousands of people on the mall in washington dc to champion science and reason so it it just had this energy to it which uh, yeah came to be called the new atheism and probably began around the mid 2000s and and i would argue had a shelf life to about maybe 2016 17 something like that I was um so I was a teenager during that period and teenagers obviously do tend towards atheist feeling generally or well I think uh teenagers tend to be contrarian so whatever yes. happens to be you know flavor of the month teenagers are likely to adopt and I loved the god delusion um I and I remember the atheist bus thing in London Francis Spofford has such a beautiful um section in his book unbelievable on the atheist bus yes I'm sure you've read it Yes, though, though his book is actually unapologetic, um, and and it, it's oh sorry, it, sorry, it, I no, it, no, no, it's fine. There's lots of uh, unsomething books out there of some some form or other. <laughs> but um, yeah, it was an interesting moment. I mean, I I was not a teenager uh, when the, the new atheism came round, but um, I could see its appeal to teenagers. I think it it did embody that contrarian spirit um, that you spoke mm. of, and the atheist bus campaign. In a funny way, I found it quite enlivening. You know, I, I I say at the beginning of my book that, you know, if you wanted to kind of tell people to forget about God, 
well, you hardly needed to say it to the UK. You know, very few people were mm. taking God seriously to start with. Uh, it was a bit like sort of asking a teenager if they would fancy a lion on a Saturday morning. It, it hardly needed to be said. Yet by putting the question, you know, onto bus posters, it kind of stirred up the whole debate, you know, and, it, you know, there were some Christians mm. who were happy to support it because they thought it was a great way of raising questions. So I think it was a bit of a gift in the end, actually, that that bus campaign, as, as much as it was done to kind of, you know, do do God down. I think it did God a favour in a way. It strikes me now as being quite a, um, of taking a slightly archaic view of Christianity as well, because I think what we were encouraged to think with the stop, so there's probably no God, stop worrying about it and enjoy your life, right, is to basically stop worrying about hellfire. Hmm. And it doesn't seem to me as though hellfire is front and centre of most <laughs> mainstream Christianity in Britain nowadays, but that was the I guess that was the that was yeah. the promise of atheism that yeah. you didn't have to worry about such things anymore. I, I think that was definitely, and it was in a way responding, I think, to the kind of Christian bus campaigns that had, you know, um, threatened hellfire to people who did not believe. But as you say, I mean, to some extent, I think most people rolled their eyes at that form of Christianity in the UK by the time that campaign happened, and. and um, most people's experience of Christianity, well, in, in the UK at least, was, was probably just dimly remembered Sunday school lessons and fusty old churches with, with you know, uh, dank smelling pews and things like that. It didn't represent this terrible, you know, uh, threatening enemy of reason and science that it was often painted as. I think the new atheism to that extent was more actually um, driven by concerns around religion and so on in the US um, because there there was mm -hmm. a bit more of a kind of sense that some people were worried that creationism was being taught in classrooms and you know that the religious right had more of a hold on power and that sort of thing it did it did always feel like a slightly odd sort of movement in the UK if I'm honest because we we, we hadn't for a long time had a Christian majority so so it didn't feel like there was some some dreadful thing around the corner that we needed to be afraid of but yeah, I, I I appreciate what you say. It's 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 a kind of it felt a li little bit like it was swinging for something that that wasn't quite there in the end. Mm, shadow boxing. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think for Brits as well, it was an opportunity to um, feel smugly condescending towards Americans, which is you know I, I <laughs> I'd be lying if I said and I didn't sometimes indulge in that. Um, but of course, because it's at the same time as the Iraq War, and there's a lot of mm. sort of anti um, Yank feeling in the air. So making fun of creationists was quite attractive yeah ab ab absolutely and, and to be honest you know I, there was plenty to make fun of you know it's, I'm not suggesting that uh, Christianity in all its forms is not something that you couldn't take the mick out of quite easily and um, to be honest you know there probably were some forms of Christianity that it was probably a good thing that new atheism was there to puncture and to ask hard questions of at the very least again I I was you know having these conversations um from about the mid 2000s around the time new atheism rose on this radio show i began called unbelievable where i it really you know it was really helped by the new atheism because it gave us a really good thing to re be responding to and i was bringing christians and atheists on to discuss these big questions and it was great to have richard dawkins there essentially you could just take one chapter at a time of the god delusion and debate it and it was a really obvious kind of way of engaging those questions so i was very thankful in the end for it i i think the new atheism itself um obviously it had a number of converts it, it sort of people i think who were ready to receive that message and shun religion did so i think i don't think though in the end it sort of 
led to a big kind of movement towards people adopting a kind of scientific materialism of the short champion by Richard Dawkins. I think, I mean, I've heard interestingly more recently, some of those new atheist thinkers and architects really somewhat um, regretting the movement for the fact that it sort of swept the board clean of religious stories or the traditional religious stories only to kind of open up a void for lots of quasi religious stories in our culture to kind of sweep in not this sort of scientific utopia that I think the new atheists hoped would 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 take the stage so it's it's interesting to see what the effects are in retrospect when even some of the architects of the movement somewhat seem to regret some of some of what it entailed mm. I mean from my perspective on new atheism is that it very clearly failed. <laughs> I mean, not in the sense of sort of um, killing the Church of England, but I'm not sure of the Church of England. Being all about. Well, we can get onto this, I'm sure, yeah. and talk about the sort of health of the Church of England. Um, more in terms of uh, this expectation that if only we were to get rid of these archaic ideologies, that people would replace it with mm. just sort of pure reason. And I think that very clearly hasn't happened. Um, Absolutely. I'm, I'm by no means original in, in saying that actually politics has become more religious exactly as religious yeah. attendance has declined yeah and there, there's a famous line isn't there by gk chesterton that um uh, when people stop believing in god they don't then believe in nothing they have the capacity to believe in anything i, I think that's sort of been proved mm. true somewhat in in a post-christian age you know people filled it with something and often it is as you say political ideologies it's it may be some kind of social justice issue that effectively takes the place of God in their life because they invest all of the, the what is sacred and most important to them in that thing. And of course, it's not just things on the progressive left. You know, I think there are a right wing kind of political mythologies, certain Messiah figures who have been raised uh, in the USA, for instance, um, you know, again, which I think are kind of functioning in the place of the Christian story in, a, in, an, in an odd sort of way. I mean, really where my book begins, The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God is is sort of looking at this rise and fall of new atheism because i think the the funny thing is that the the, the new atheism itself was successful for a while uh, or at least on the surface but it was indeed those culture wars that you know you're so familiar with that that came to eventually demolish the new atheism because it once they'd sort of agreed that god didn't exist and religion was bad for you when they actually tried to build a positive ethic well what are we for they then fell out with each other quite dramatically over what that would be mm. um i i mm. talk about in the book one particular moment that i think was a sort of defining one for this new atheist movement which was in 2011 and there was a skeptical vlogger called rebecca watson who who vlogged under the title skeptic and she was speaking at an atheist conference in dublin alongside people like richard dawkins and she was gave a talk on sort of some of the problems with misogyny and sexism in the atheist movement, what she'd experienced online and so on. And then later on, sort of in the early hours of the morning after drinks at the hotel bar, she went back to her room, got in the elevator and another conference delegate got in, a, a guy and said, would you like to come back to my room for coffee sort of thing? And of course, we know what that's code for. And she you know, politely refused, but then later did a sort of vlog on this and said, this is the problem, <laughs> you know, did they not hear anything I just said? And that might have been the end of it, except that Richard Dawkins himself then weighed in with a heavily sarcastic blog in response to this video titled Dear Muslima, in which he parodied the concerns of these Western atheist women compared to sort of women facing far worse religious 
you know, stuff in, in other parts of the world and said, you know, forget about the fact you're having your hands chopped off, um, Muslima. You know, think about your poor atheist sisters in the West being asked for coffee. And this sort of response kind of, you know, downplaying the seriousness of this stuff just poured petrol on, <laughs> on the whole thing. And suddenly the atheists, I, I think it was in that moment, what they now dub elevator gate, as everything has to be dubbed with, with gate, um, that you, you saw the beginnings of this movement called Atheism Plus, which was sort of, no, we have to be atheist plus a commitment to, to social justice, feminism, LGBT, and so on. And the kind of direction that ultimately Richard Dawkins was wanting it to go in, which was, no, we're just interested in science, free thinking, reason, we don't need all these political ideologies and so on. And and that really was the start of how the atheist movement itself got undone because it, it just developed into all these warring factions, splits, controversies, people not even being able to share a stage in the end because they were they'd fallen out with each other so dramatically on these these culture war issues. So for me it it was just interesting to see that um there's a sort of Religion doesn't go away, it just takes different forms, even in new atheism, you know, you effectively got a kind of religious movement that ultimately split over the direction it should be going. And how wild, really, to think that you could have a sort of system of ethics that wasn't political. <laughs> yeah, did, yeah. You know, that was like purely rational. It, it, there was a certain sort of sweet naivety almost in it, because mm. I think Dawkins and co did did kind of hark back to some kind of, you know, idea enlightenment idea that we could all sort of live in this utopian brotherhood of man if we just you know used reason and science as our guide and i don't know i mean it it, it was you know looking back on it spectacularly naive and i think some of them have come to realize in retrospect how naive that view was but at the same time i did it was a sort of simple simplistic answer and that was kind of ready to be heard by a lot of people i think sometimes people like simple solutions to complex problems and so being told, well, if we just, you know, invested more in science and, you know, thought reasonably about things, we'll all, we'll all work it out. And, uh, but, you know, John, John Lennon, it proved, you know, it was a bit more complex than just, you know, getting on together and a brotherhood of man emerging. It, it, it always is more complex, isn't it? And it's much, much easier to tear things down than to offer something. So in some senses, maybe they were the victims of their own success that they were, they they did the uh, the negative critique so successfully, and then what came next turned out to be much more difficult. I, I think that's right, and I think that's that's why I think you've seen quite quickly. Really, I was noticing that these conversations were changing. That while it was sort of quite popular and doing well in popular culture, new atheism was interesting and fun, and you know the debates that I was hosting kind of tended to revolve around those issues. But I did notice that sort of as it ultimately failed to give people a, a positive ethic to live their life by people still found themselves basically asking those big questions why am i here how do i make meaning of life you know i'm stuck in a dead-end job you know how you know science and reason can't really help you out if you're just really you know depressed basically and um and i think that's why you've had a lot of that audience i think ended up turning to other secular intellectuals like jordan peterson um, because I think mm. they, they at least were still, uh, you know, asking serious. In, they were kind of taking a serious intellectual look at life, but they weren't just dismissing the God thing and Christianity out of hand. In fact, they were suggesting, well, maybe there's something worth considering in this. Maybe, maybe um, it, you know, they, they were too quick to dismiss it. Um, so I, I think that's why that audience suddenly did actually flip almost to 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 
the new platforms that those folk were bringing because they they at least seemed to be building something a bit more positive they were kind of giving you some tools for actually getting through life rather than just tearing down the thing that people used to use to to get them through life I mean, if we were to put our Tom Holland hats on for a minute, and you do, you, you write about Tom Holland quite a lot in the book. Um, his thesis, of course, in Dominion being that actually an enormous amount of contemporary culture in the West is derived from Christian principles. We just don't always um, acknowledge it explicitly. A lot of what was going on in New Atheism, particularly in the Atheism Plus faction, which kind of turned into the progressive woke or whatever you want to call it faction mm. as time went by, was actually very like very strongly influenced by christian principles mm. like equality for instance you know that is not a universal principle by any means but that's very fundamental to the work worldview mm. and is clearly descended from two thousand years of um christendom what you see maybe with peterson is that and and similar kind of figures is 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 a is just you know, making that Christian influence just a little bit more explicit, but bringing in some of the other. I mean, my view on mm. why the woke Christian thing doesn't actually work very well is is that what they've done is obviously they've taken away the theology and they've also taken away um, the sort of structuring uh, principles of the faith and just plucked out. There's another Chesterton quote. I mean, we can just throw Chesterton quotes into <laughs> all day um, about kind of untethering virtues actually produces mm. Mm. chaos yeah because they only work in concert with one another and if you only take say equality mm. on its own that doesn't work it needs to be sort of balanced by the other things so, yeah. so peterson brings in order famously yeah. right talks mm. about hierarchy mm. as actually a potential good um so it seems as if we're all just playing with the same christian principles it's just sort of uh, yes yes as, as another slightly different recipes as another mutual friend of mine glenn of ours glenn scrivener says he says we're we're, we're all hurling mm. Bible verses at each other. We've just forgotten the references. And I think that's right. We, we <laughs> yes, kind of, we're yeah. taking all the the values and virtues in a sense that how, do, of course, under, undergird our sense of who, what humans are and, and why we, you know, the fact that we believe in equality. But which, as Tom Holland says, is essentially a theological belief. It's, it's certainly not based in any kind mm -hmm. of purely scientific or rational kind of, you know, bit of reasoning. But we do. And uh, and the problem is, as, as you say, I think some groups tend to just focus on that to the exclusion of all the other things that kind of undergirded it and came with it and the structures of our society that sort of helped us to embody that. So I, I engaged, encountered your work, Louise, sort of at the point where I was really finishing the manuscript for this book, you know, over a year ago. And um, and I was just surprised though when I, I, you know, I remember over one half term holiday reading um, the case against the sexual revolution. I thought, oh, I wish I'd read this book before I started writing my book because so much <laughs> of what you were writing chimed perfectly with with this what I was trying to express. This idea that you know we we have um, a culture that's kind of riding on the coattails to some extent of of Christian morality, but has kind of uh, expressing some of those things. You know, you talk obviously about consent, but without everything else that then gave that you know a meaning and a sense of of, of location in in all the other sorts of things that we need in a to have a good sexual relationships with each other and um i i was obviously when you wrote that book you didn't do it from a christian perspective but i i was very struck as well, I tom holland it. would say i did but <laughs> well the, the, yes at a subconscious level of course we all write yes. everything in a christian way according to tom holland but the <laughs> but but nonetheless you were coming to these very christian friendly christian adjacent conclusions and 
and I I thought, well, isn't that interesting? Because I was noticing other people, you know, doing the same thing, secular intellectuals who were sort of surprised to find themselves, you know, you know, in, in something of an agreement with with some of the ways in which Christianity had had actually brought about this culture, at least. And I think that the problem was with the new atheists, they wanted to have their cake and eat it. They they did want the benefits, but they wanted to kind of jettison the underlying story or the the practices that had, had kind of actually inculcated these values of equality dignity human rights and everything else but as you say it's very difficult to hold on to those things in in the absence of of it um i think i think that's the big question obviously for our culture generally is you know um can we hold on to these these fruits of the christian revolution in the absence of people really believing the christian story any longer um and mm. I, I i do wonder whether whether that is possible how how long can you sort of keep going on the the faded embers, if you like, of a story that's only half remembered any longer. But my my big case is, in a way, optimistic case, you may say, in this book, mm -hmm. is that as these stories kind of do run out of steam, the kind of either the, the woke left stories or the, you know, religious right stories or the, the atheist story or the materialist story, or this, I, I just think people get to a point where they're willing to consider that old, old story again. And I think it's interesting to see that as secular intellectuals from out, people outside the church start reminding them about it. I just wonder whether we might be sort of living in some kind of moment between tides where the sea of faith, yes, it's gone out. But as Douglas Murray reminded me in, a, in an interview a few years ago, he said the thing about the sea of faith is it could come back in. You know, that's the point of tides. And, and I, I suppose my optimistic thesis is that as we see sort of these secular intellectuals sort of starting to rediscover you know some value in the christian faith and i find myself surprised by interesting people converting to christianity occasionally whether there might just be something in the atmosphere that's mm. that could herald the turning of a tide and the you know that their christian story could be ready to come back in again and 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 sort of give people meaning and it, it feels like on one level, I feel crazy even saying that because it feels like, well, you can't put this genie back in the bottle now. But on the other hand, I don't know, you look back on history and big changes have happened. You know, we turned from the pagan Roman Empire to a Christian culture. Now, it took a you know a long time, but it happened. You know, uh, it's not like big changes mm. can't happen again, even in our lifetime. Mm. And indeed, religious revivals within Christianity are not unheard mm. of at all. Indeed. I suppose the, the difficult question to answer, though, first of all, if we're going to predict a um, Christian revival, is why exactly there's been a, why exactly the tide has come out. Mm. I And I, I don't really have an answer to that. It's very difficult. It, it probably, I mean, it correlates with so many other things, but maybe it might have something to do with affluence. Maybe it might have something to do with communication technologies i don't know i mean as mm. you say new atheism was in many ways um forged by the internet and the fact that all of these sort of contrarian arguments if people were able to find one another mm. um that equally i suppose could end up forging yeah. religious revivals of different kinds too i i think that what's it's... your what do you have a leading theory for why exactly <laughs> we became so much less religious before we start talking about becoming more religious I, I don't know i guess lots of people have written on the sort of secularization thesis haven't they and you know most people linking it to the enlightenment and kind of just it sort of this disenchanting effect it had across our culture to the extent that even 
you know, more modern forms of Christianity, Protestantism, etc., tended to be more left brain. They, they they were not sort of just about being surrounded by, a, a, you know, a story. It was more about having to make sense of this story in a logical fashion. And and I so I think to some extent that 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 sort of way of thinking has has kind of just increased over the last several hundred years at, to the point where you eventually end up with you know basically the end point of that being a highly kind of uh materialistic ways of understanding the world including faith and and people kind of buy this story that well that, that must be the way it is that that's the sort of way that the world works and and so we're sort of just telling ourselves these stories about christianity and god just as a sort of placebo for you know for the reality which uh, is probably what the new atheists you know that this kind of mindless mechanistic universe is so i think that that's that's all something to do with it this this kind of materialistic story of reality has kind of just been encroaching increasingly across all spheres of life it's sort of just the default view in academia and, and everything else these days whereas it wasn't once i think technology has a huge part to play in that almost accelerating really within the 20th century and obviously in the last couple of decades it's it feels like that as it it's sort of all kind of if it was a sort of gradual thing it's sort of only accelerated thanks to technology making everyone head in that same direction and just forcing a kind of material not just a philosophically materialist but a kind of culturally materialistic individualistic culture that we now live in so all of that i think plays into why religion institutional religion has been not no longer flavor of the month um arguably it's not just religion that's seeing that you know there are all people don't tend to join political parties much these days either because we we're more individualistic we don't sort of do those communal things that once shaped us the problem is and i think now a lot of the psychologists and others are recognizing we it, it, it it's a problem for humans because um we 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 evolved to be these communal creatures who are shaped by the stories that we tell each other and seeing ourselves as part of something bigger um i believe there is a a story you know as a christian that that we're meant to see ourselves as part of but as we lose that we um we kind of we kind of now imagine ourselves as sort of free floating entities and everyone's having to make their own story and as that sort of has accelerated to a kind of fever pitch in a social media age where we're now sort of bombarded with all manner of ways in which you could potentially shape and determine your own identity. I think it, it especially for young people, creates this kind of intolerable burden. It's a lot of the reason I think behind the mental health crisis, the sort of anxiety, depression, suicide and so on. And what, you know, again, psychologists have labeled the, the meaning crisis in our culture where we feel alienated from the world and each other by technology and the loss of this shared story um and i think all these new you know uh trendy uh secular intellectual thinkers are kind of onto something they're they're recognizing it the question is well what's the answer because you know those would be very good at coming up with a solution and it can't simply be let's just start believing again because it is like how do you how do you put that genie back in the bottle but there's got to be something about, for me, it's it's about helping people to realize that we don't have to live in the story of reality that we've been sort of born into in Western culture 
in 21st century Western culture, at least, that actually there is this, this other story that still has immense resonance and power once people discover it. And this thing that as much as it's a very faulty and broken thing called the church, which has been the bearer of that story and still has the capacity to be transformative agent for culture and society on earth. So that's, um, that's kind of where I land. I don't have a lot of solutions, I, I, but I do believe that rediscovering that story that sort of ultimately makes sense of all those other stories people are trying to live their lives by is, is for me the ultimate key to, uh, to how we make sense of, of where the world's gone. I've made this argument around a few dinner tables and a few sort of panels when it's quite common for people who are critical of woke politics but are not religious to say something like, you know, it's not enough. Well, increasingly, I mean, there was a phase where there was just lots of criticism of wokeness and now that's sort of, that's been said and there's a more of a move towards saying, well, what, you know, what next? What's a kind of, what's, we know that there's this meaning crisis. We know that young people are lonely, miserable, all the rest of it. Um, what, what, what can we offer in their place? Because clearly people are finding meaning in politics mm. to some extent, mm. even if politics is quite a poor, poor source of meaning ultimately. And, um, and I've, I've had the experience a few times of putting up my hand meekly and saying, have you considered Christianity? <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not evangelizing, <laughs> but I'm saying that it's probably the story that has been believed by more people, you mm. know, mm. throughout human history than any other, just in terms of sort of the raw numbers. And it has a remarkable ability to adapt itself to different cultures and sort of work in different registers. And, um, mm. and uh, so far that hasn't gone down very well. <laughs> because it's seen as sort of moving backwards, which of course it is, but the, um, the, the in a sense, and is, also is it yeah, possible? I, 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 exactly. I think, I think the reason you probably meet such incredulity around the dinner table is- <laughs> that's, that's the word, is, yeah. Yeah, is because <laughs> I think people think, well, not only are you potentially asking me to believe in something that just seems weird and outdated and irrelevant, but you're also potentially asking me to, to change the way I live because of it, you know, to, to yeah. make different decisions about my life. And I mean, that was, I mean, that was the remarkable thing again about your book, you know, if I may come back to it, which is the, the kind of solutions you suggested for how people might have a, a, a happier, more fulfilling sex life or relationships were, were kind of you know basically well don't just go with the flow with the, what culture says is the best way to find personal expression and freedom and everything like you know be choosy uh wait um and you know christianity sort of says that about yes you know that that issue um in fact e e even more draconianly it, it suggests you should wait until you're married and stick to the same person through thick and thin um that's that's a, a high bar in our culture to to kind of call people to, but equally it's not just that. I think I think there are all kinds of things that a, a thoroughgoing Christianity will challenge people to. So it's no surprise to me that just presenting it as it's not like just saying, "Have you thought of picking up this self help book?" Because I think in, in its true form, Christianity will be a very challenging road for someone to walk down, which is partly why I think almost the meaning crisis is going to have to get worse before. A lot of people would even begin to consider it. I think it's almost like, uh, as long as we've still got the luxury of kind of complaining about it, and but you know we we we've still I don't know got enough in our lives to sort of that we don't have to make those kind of big sacrifices. I think a lot of people will 
will choose to reject it. I also think if I'm honest as well, um, it's just harder to make that change as, a, as an adult. I think there's a reason why, you know, most people, if they're going to be a Christian, they've probably made that decision by their late teens and early 20s. That's not to say I haven't met plenty of adult converts. I do. And I'm surprised actually by how many I'm meeting these days, interestingly. But I think it just is harder to make a big U-turn in your life when you're, you've reached a certain age and it's, you, it's, it's harder to change the trajectory and the, the beliefs you have and the, you know, the, the way, the patterns of your life, you know, it's, it's much, much more of a sacrifice. So, so I don't, uh, I'm not at all surprised to hear <laughs> that kind of response around the dinner table. Most Christians were very positive in their responses to my book, but a common response I had was, why didn't you just go, go the whole way? Why did you say, I said, I think, wait three months into a relationship before having sex. Um, why not say wait before marriage? And actually, I can tell you that I did think, I, I basically, you know, because I wrote the book over the course of uh, a year, a bit more, and I had a baby in the middle, so it was quite a long period of time. And I did basically persuade myself by the end of it that actually um uh premarital sex is bad <laughs> like I actually I, I I I persuaded myself into the Christian position I mean it's not just Christian but that position mm. um and I thought of making that and I thought of advising that explicitly in the last chapter and then I spoke to my mum who said if you do that that's the only thing anyone's ever going to say about the book <laughs> that's going to be the top line of every review that you know that this is this is what this um this crazy lady has yeah. suggested and so mm. i didn't i toned it down but and, and, and indeed my final chapter is listen to your mother so you know <laughs> i followed Very, my own advice in that regard advice. and she's right i think it would have been mm. so mm. shocking and it mm. was intended to be it, it, the book is intended for people who are coming well the book ends up it, i wrote it for people coming from my kind of background the sort of progressive secular background um, who are interested in something more less secular, mm. more conservative. Mm. But mm. interestingly, I also have heard from quite a lot of people who come from more um, fundamentalist religious backgrounds, not just Christian, also um, Muslim and Jewish women who like it because it yeah. is sits somewhere in the middle. Yeah. So I don't regret, therefore, yeah. soft pedaling a little I, bit. I, I, I mean, to some extent, you, you know, you weren't there to, to pedal a you know, a, a, Christ, a specifically Christian ethic of, of sexuality. It, it happened that you came very close it, it, in the end in some of your conclusions. But um, even what you did suggest was quite radical, you know, in, in today's culture. Yeah. And so <laughs> so I was just pleased to read something that just felt so different, you know, to me. Um, I mean, I, I should say, you know, the, the reality is, you know, a, any Christian who maybe did manage to do the unthinkable and wait until marriage for sex that doesn't mean you're going to have the most wonderful sex life in the world and, and there will never be any issues. Obviously, you're, you're subject to the same issues that everyone else is. But I do think, from what I can tell, from what I've seen in research and I suppose anecdotally, uh, I do just think that that being an, an option on the table and taken seriously by Christians can have very positive effects. Um, there, there are things about that. And for me, it's it's part of a much bigger picture than just the sex and relationships thing it's about it is about that re-enchanting of the world where we no longer treat and this was what really struck me most about your book is the way it laid bare the the just the the kind of way that 
um, the commodification of sex and relationships had, has just reached this kind of crazy point in our world now. And just how tragic it is that, that something that obviously has for all the obvious sociological reasons, but also deeply spiritual reasons has been treated as, as some, a kind of really important thing that needs to be treated carefully. Um, I, it, we need to get to a point where we kind of, it's not that we should go back to everything we used to sort of believe necessary or the way we used to act, but we need to re-enchant this because it turns out this is really is important. This is psychologically important for people. This makes a huge difference to the way they think about themselves and you can't just treat it carelessly and as any other plaything. And, um, and that makes you sound really kind of conservative and reactionary these days, but actually, um, I've I've got teenage kids and a teenage daughter and and I I just feel like oh I I want them to grow up in a world where it's not treated this way where where there's something special about this and um yours is the kind of book that I am uh, you know I'm passing on to my teenage daughter because I just want her to know whatever you're hearing from TikTok and Instagram and everything else that's in your life there is this is a kind of sensible way of thinking about these issues that you just need to to have in your life so yeah so a grateful father here to to you louise perry <laughs> i think the vast majority of people think that deep down and to to to, to stop talking about my book and talk about yours <laughs> you <laughs> you 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 write about this fact that that humans do seem to have this innate religious drive yes like probably there's variation um between individuals and some people seem to have find kind of religious feeling more easily inspired in them than other people um but we seem to be kind of believing animals hmm. and it, it, trying to suppress that doesn't seem to end well no for individuals I, or cultures that's right and and as i say i think the new atheism sort of tried to to sort of you know get rid of it but failed spectacularly because all, all this other quasi-religious stories essentially as i say came came on the scene and took over um i mean i i was seeing that there's a phenomenon on tiktok now called witch talk and this is essentially people using tiktok to kind of do kind of incantations and hexes and charms and kind of get the universe on their side and and it's just fascinating because i think that even in our very technological age you know we're still using it to essentially kind of invoke supernatural means. So that, I think there's at one level, there's, there just is that kind of supernatural stuff doesn't actually go very far. We're still fascinated by, you know, movies that deal in the supernatural horror movies, you know, have never mm. lost their appeal. Astrology, that, that deal, astrology the number of millennial yeah. women mm. who are mm. passionate about astrology. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, so all of that mm. is kind of hovering around somewhere, you know, even in our, post-christian secular age you know the number of the number of calls on the catholic church for instance for um exorcism especially around people who've got involved in the occult in various ways it's it's interesting that that stuff all still bubbles away and on top of that you've got then this other layer of quasi-religious kind of significance that people put into social justice causes and politics and everything else and so so i do say that that we're not any less religious we're just religious about different things there is this kind of religious instinct and there's a kind of story, story making kind of instinct. I think. Um, I think it's got Jonathan Gottschall, who's a sociologist, who talks about this 
exactly that students have to have a story to live by and um, we will end up creating something to make sense of our life even if it's pretty poor insubstantial kind of story but we'll 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 need something we can't just we can't cope with the idea that we're rich actually just sort of bouncing around chaotically without a sort of narrative you know to, that makes sense of us um and i just think yeah i just think the narrative the, the stories have been increasingly insubstantial or at least they're so varied um and can't agree with each other in our culture that that you know they create this thing we call the culture wars um and i think that for me the christian story has got this relevance and resonance you know you talked about the fact it has been instantiated in many different places times and cultures with remarkable success and i just think there's something about that story that seems to work in culture the question is sort of again it's back to that thing of well does it just work because it's a useful fiction we happen to have stumbled upon a really good story i i think it's the other way around i think it it works because it's true um and and i think we're in an exciting moment where some people might be starting to realize that this story not only makes sense of their story, but is, is a, is a real story. It's something that, that sort of makes sense. And one, one person I highlight, I'm sure you're familiar with him as well. Paul Kingsnorth in the book um, is one of those interesting people who's been a storyteller uh, all his life, a poet, um, an environmental activist as well at various points. And I think he was always looking for a story. He kind of, the teenage atheist phase kind of happened for him, but then went, and then he was into Buddhism, sort of looking for meaning kind of within, but he felt like he wanted to worship something. You know, he loved nature and, uh, and, and had this reverence, this awe almost for nature. So he kind of turned to Wicca, interestingly, um, which is a bit out there, but he, he sort of was, you know, doing the stuff in the woods and, you know, worshiping nature and, he kind of realized in the end he was sort of doing a sort of weird pastiche of sort of new age quasi-christian you know pagan stuff uh, and it was fun and kind of but he again he didn't didn't do this full job and in the interviews i've had with with paul he was very surprised to find that it was a christian story in the end that that suddenly made sense of it all to him um it wasn't some in a sense sort of hugely intellectual conversion though he's a very highly intelligent person but it was just a sense that when he stepped into this story, when he kind of stepped into, um, in the end, the Eastern, Eastern Orthodox Romanian church, which he became part of, suddenly the liturgy, the the story, uh, the worship, the sense of, of, he said it felt like he had come home. He had sort of, this story suddenly made sense of all the searching that had gone on before. And um, I guess I look at a Paul Kingsnorth, again, someone who in their, I guess, late 40s, came to faith uh only in the last few years and and if it can happen to paul kingsdorf i think well it could happen to quite a few other people actually there's a sort of there's a chance that that religious longing might just find its home again in in the greatest story ever told as they say so so that's again some people have said i'm too optimistic because because that sea of faith could wash in all other kinds of of things and but but i might i've i've i guess i've just got a, a hope and a faith that it's the Christian story that will eventually wash in and wash the other ones away. Have you read King's North essay? Uh, I think it was for First Things, uh, Wild Christianity. Mm, yes. A year or two ago. Kind of... Such a beautiful essay. Mm, yeah. And I, I, um, I mean, so speaking personally, I'm kind of in that. I, 
I find Christianity very, very compelling intellectually and emotionally, but I find the metaphysics difficult. Mm. And I think it's because we've sort of had this fire break. I think that if I had been born some centuries ago, I would have just believed mm -hmm. completely. I would have been raised believing and I would have just believed and it would never have really been. I don't, I don't think I'm sort of a natural atheist. I think I would have um, embraced the, the faith that I swam in at the time. But given that I wasn't, it's now quite hard to really, you know, to mm. sign up for all of it. Yeah. You know, not just the resurrection, but <laughs> the heaven and, 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 you know, like there, there are so many supernatural claims within Christianity, mm. um, which, uh, I just, my, 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 uh, my disenchanted brain can't quite manage, but I do see many examples, including Kings North and others of people who, um, who have managed to jump that gulf mm. and actually, you know, I, I have friends who've had charismatic experiences in adulthood or who have just, um, I think Jordan Peterson is in this category, although I don't know in detail, just kind of gone to church, kept going to church and eventually you fake it till you make it. That's a <laughs> fairly common well, adult convert experience. Yeah. I, I, I appreciate you being so, so honest about that, Louise, because I haven't heard you speak that, that uh, very candidly at this point about your own sort of search here. I mean, if I may play quasi sort of spiritual advisor to you though I, I hesitate to, Please. to to do that um <laughs> I mean what I I totally get what you're saying I I think it's really difficult I think if you've been raised in a very kind of rational environment to sort of it feels like you're having to sort of sacrifice a part of your yeah something to to sort of buy into the the sort of the metaphysics as you say of the whole thing at the same time I I feel like without realizing we've almost been indoctrinated into a kind of materialist understanding of reality at the same time without really being shown all the working out. I, I just feel like the more that I look even at the, even on a kind of purely objectively scientific level at our universe, there's all kinds of aspects of it that seem to be to me crying out for an explanation beyond itself. I don't think the concept of God per se is at all one that you have to make a huge intellectual leap for. I, I think that mm. the more I look at the nature of the universe, the, the nature of ourselves as, as sort of moral creatures, I don't think the God conclusion is necessarily one that, that is that hard to reach. I think it's the sort of the God in with, with skin on Jesus that, that is probably the next hardest gulf to, to cross and i get that um but then my that's one of those areas where i would say my my first inclination would just be to get someone just go and read the gospels and and just see what happens because i think it's it you almost have to sort of put yourself in to that story to, to for, for the character of jesus to suddenly start to potentially make sense and and obviously on the Christian worldview, I'm sure I'm not telling you anything you don't already know, but the, you know, it is Jesus who basically shows us what God is like. God stops being an abstract proposition and becomes very real in that way. And again, I just find it incredibly interesting that when you do a bit of history, 
as sort of Tom Holland has done, you know, you just see, firstly, gosh, this, this tiny little sect had this outsized influence on the whole of the world. And at the very center of this influence was this bizarre historical claim that the Jewish Messiah had been crucified and had then risen again. And against all of their theological expectations, his followers went around telling people and were willing to be martyred and crucified themselves on the back of it. And for me, I guess I, I kind of tentatively put these blocks together and say, well, look, <laughs> I think I can build a kind of intellectual case for kind of that, that at least gets me so far towards those metaphysical claims. But there is a kind of point at which you're then going to have to say, OK, I'm either in or out on this. And I've I, I've maybe constructed a bridge close enough for it not to feel like I'm just leaving my brains at the door. But I I could take a step here, a Kierkegaardian, you know, leap of faith and and see what happens. And in my experience, when, when people have done that, they've they've been surprised to find, yeah, that some suddenly the pieces do all slot together in a way I hadn't quite expected or whatever. I just think that that, that you, you're never in the end going to get away from that, that sort of, it, it's about kind of transferring from one worldview to another, quite literally. And the way the Bible puts that is being transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. So it's, it's like you are putting down your materialist goggles perspective on the world and picking up this new way of looking at reality and the world. And hopefully you don't in the process become a complete weirdo, though some people probably do start to look and sound a bit weird to their friends but it's it is a kind of it is a paradigm shift and um and i i don't know that's that that's the the only advice i can offer to you that there's there's there is a good kind of foundation there that that this is based on but in the end yeah it's kind of like you're having to step from one thing into another i am um, i had coffee with it christian friend recently who 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 took like 10 years or something to um gradually she didn't have a charismatic moment right she just gradually gradually transitioned to being someone who believed and she said that you know look the good thing about christianity and indeed many other faiths right but but the good thing about christianity is that it is uh comprehensive and internally coherent and it's actually not like there's really an alternative it's not like the scientism of Dawkins is comprehensive and eternally coherent. It doesn't actually offer a real alternative. It doesn't tell us why we're here or any of that. It doesn't claim to. Um, so it's kind of like either you just dive in face first and just say, okay, I'll just accept it and stop worrying about it so much, as the poster advises us to. So funny enough, she, her <laughs> advice was basically just, just, her advice was basically, why don't you just believe in God and stop worrying about it? And enjoy your life. <laughs> <laughs> and enjoy your life exactly <laughs> exactly um i mean this is the, the beautiful thing in um francis Spofford's description of those posters uh in unapologetic not unbel unbelievable is mm. your show unapologetic yes. is his book um uh that he says you know what a thing to say to someone who's living a completely wretched life mm. just stop worrying about it stop worrying mm. about whether god exists you know actually mm. someone who's at the absolute bottom of the heap the only thing they have is God, mm. potentially. And to yeah. take that one thing away from them. I mean, one of the things that Christianity does very well, it compared actually with many other 
with possibly all other religious systems is it, it is it offers uh it, it it's it, it offers comfort to the suffering because suffering is built into the central story mm. yeah in a way that say a belief in reincarnation is you know not quite the same mm. is it i mean mm. yes there's that there's the expectation of, of living again but there's also the belief that in some sense your suffering is your own fault yeah and i like i like spufford i use him as an example actually along with people like paul kingsnorth towards the end of the book of some of these adult converts because he although he'd sort of been raised in the anglican church he sort of rejected it sort of in his own sort of teenage atheism and just rebelling i think generally against authority and so on but he kind of came back to it as an adult um, because as his subtitle of his book says, it, it made surprising emotional sense to him. And mm. one of the key th insights I liked from the book was that he said, because Christianity takes both the, the brokenness of humanity seriously, as well as its glorious capacity for good. But it does not shy away from the fact that we make an absolute mess of things, you know, the human propensity to F things up, as he calls it. Um, but that that it it sort of meets us in both our brokenness and our glory and and that i think is is a, a tremendous thing because I, my problem sometimes with the secular humanist sort of thing is is it's got this sort of sunny optimism oh well we'll all be all fine in the end you know if we just rally together and you know show our human spirit well that's not very realistic that doesn't happen <laughs> you know that if the history of the early 20th century showed us anything it's that you know, people are pretty crap and um, just encouraging them to get along with each other better is, is not going to make a blind bit of difference to that. And so I don't think like my humanist friends take the reality of human brokenness seriously enough, but I think Christianity does. I think it's right at the core of it, as you say, and the brokenness of our world. But it also has this tremendous hope that it can be redeemed, that there is, you know, the, the other side of the, you know, the humanist coin is the kind of nihilistic atheism which sort of says, well, you know, there is no ultimate justice. There is no ultimate transformation or redemption. The world is a crappy place. And if you're at the bottom of the hype, you know, tough luck. Um, whereas I do believe in a story where those at the bottom of the heap will be vindicated one day. There will be a kind of justice that is done. Um, and, and that, for me, isn't just a kind of pie in the sky. I think it's a kind of, it meets my deepest sense of, of justice in this world you know being done by if there is a a god behind it that it will be done in in the world to come um so i i i kind of i i i in that sense feel like yeah the christian story is, is holistic in that way it's not just a kind of escapism or fantasy to make us feel better i think it takes humans seriously and the problem is we sometimes get a very a caricature of it obviously from the new atheists but even sometimes sadly from the christian world as well we get a very watered down diluted sort of you know version and i don't sometimes i just don't blame people for rejecting that because I, I would probably reject that too but but i think when people meet the real deal when the francis buffards and the paul kings north and hey maybe the louise perry's of this world meet it i think it can it can suddenly feel like yeah this is, is something i could take seriously this is something that would could 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 kind of give that sense of narrative and structure and purpose to to, to life that i've been looking for I mentioned Church of England earlier as a um, <laughs> as, as a as a somewhat um, uh, troubled institution, and it, I, I I was just um, 
I have again to be candid I have I have been to just about every flavor of Christian service at some point over the last decade or so I actually did a um funnily enough when I was at university and doing anthropology I actually did field work with the um uh the Moonies oh wow so I've even been to Mooney services yeah um and one and and the interesting thing that we see at the moment in um uh the Church of England in this country and I think also this is true in other countries to some extent is that basically the two the two styles of worship which seem to be doing best are either the highly traditionalist so the 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 the, the Anglo-Catholic so mm. I believe as well in France um and in the states traditional catholic worship is growing partly because people have loads of kids but also partly because it is attracting new converts but then the other style of worship that's done um has proved popular in recent years in this country is the Holy Trinity Brompton style. So the kind of charismatic, yeah. the pop music, all of this. And I've, I, I've been to um, HTB style services and I actually quite like them. And our toddler loves them. Like they're very, they're great for families. They're really yeah. good. But I was just thinking when listening to you to talk about this, um, this kind of um, holistic understanding of suffering and brokenness, I don't see that very much in that kind of very, um, the way that a, a friend described it to me is it's kind of like primary colors theology, hmm. like extremely happy, extremely positive, yeah. ex- yeah. you know, God, the, the God yeah. loves you. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's yeah. like the top note, but it's not just the top note. It's the only note. There isn't yeah. really, I don't feel that like there's space in that for actually the thing that attracts me to the faith. And maybe this is because I'm a neurotic is the, um, is the kind of the, the 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 space to be extremely earnest in talking about hmm. um suffering and difficulty yeah i but I, maybe I, but people clearly like that yeah I, I i i i would agree with you i think those are the two two ends of the church that, that where there is mm. life it's happening there i mean what i would say about both of those and i'll come to the issue about kind of the space for kind of you know the the desolation and solitude or you know that that side of life not just the celebration i would say that what what those two on the surface of it very different approaches to worship highly liturgical high church versus kind of very low church drums and guitars and enthusiastic worship uh what they have in common is that they're both sort of um they're both otherworldly in a way They're they're kind of mm. they they really take people outside of their mundane everyday experience and if it's in the kind of theatrical anglo-catholic kind of tradition that just you know does this very ceremonial you know deeply poetic way of of entering god's presence or whether it's the holy trinity brompton kind of like ecstatic kind of you know hands in the air sort of charismatic worship i think what what both of them have in common is is that they're they're they take people out of the normal every day and they they kind of show that there's a there's a different world there's something out outside of their ordinary I think I think you're absolutely right to say that potentially one of those celebration, joy, triumphalism, when life is obviously styles, can verge a bit too much on constant, much more than that. And Christianity, you know, uh, addresses that a great deal. Um, I would say that even within those traditions, I have seen, I have seen the flip side of that. I've se- I've seen, you know, those modern charismatic churches do actually um, some kind of lament or or you know introspection quite well as well. But I do think it's it's potentially a problem. Um, I think to some extent um, that's where the Anglo-Catholic tradition 
which always sort of confronts you in its liturgy with the good and the bad and then the joyful sort of resolution of all that. Uh, that that's what's one of the great things. Uh, what I've noticed, in fact, in speaking to a number of these secular intellectuals who are kind of maybe approaching Christianity interested in it is that they do tend to err, and maybe it's because a lot of them are on the more conservative side as well, they, they tend to err towards the Anglo-Catholic or, you know, Catholic or uh, Eastern Orthodox kind of deeply rooted, ancient, mysterious kind of tradition. I think precisely because they feel like it, it, it launches them into something different to their everyday and that's sort of what they're looking for they're looking for a, a different story of reality so i think i think um you know the advice that that our mutual friend tom holland has, has often given me is keep christianity weird if you want to attract people like me justin don't don't dumb it down don't make it diluted don't make it kind of you know prosaic thought of the day type stuff um give me the the angels and the weirdness and the you know because uh, because that's sort of what's ultimately aesthetically attractive, I think, to someone like Tom Holland. Um, but I know lots of people who they just find it weird and discombobulating to, to be in an Anglo-Catholic sort of setting. And they, it is going to be the HDB type type thing that attracts them. But as I say, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just the fact we're all, we're all made differently. Why well, I think that the common denominator is it's like it's a kind of all in thing. It's like I don't, if, if we're just in this lukewarm middle, um, I think people are going to reject that because I, I can get just, you know, tea and cake down at the golf club. I don't have to turn up at church on a Sunday morning to, to You don't have to mumble that. into your hymn sheet as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I completely agree with you about that, that sort of, um, that otherworldly aspect being attractive and even though it's completely different styles. Anyone listening who's never been to an Anglo-Catholic or a high church service, um, I'd really recommend going to an all Souls service. Hmm. Because yeah. I, I I found I've been to All Souls at um, St Bartholomew the Great in London a few years running and just found it so beautiful. Mm. And it's very interesting. Another you world, exactly. Yeah. You you mentioned that at the time of recording, it's still still in the process of being sorted, so it might not happen. But I'm I'm planning on on a book launch actually at St Bartholomew the Great. Um, the the vicar oh, there is is there Marcus Walker, and I I know him. We were sort of contemporaries at university and. He he! It is the oldest church in the city of London, and um, and I I I interviewed him once or twice about it, and he he would say, you know, um, COVID notwithstanding, that actually uh, it has been interestingly attractive to a lot of millennials. You know, not the age range you would expect to be turning up for a very traditional Anglo-Catholic service, but I think there's part that there is something I think, especially among young people, that is is hearkening for something different and mysterious. They don't necessarily want you know a church version of a Coldplay concert and you know a TED talk um they want something that feels you know different and mysterious and uh, otherworldly in that way and uh, I think you get that probably with bells and whistles on at, at um, St Bartholomew the Great so I, th I it's I, I'm looking forward to being there um details yet to be announced to to talk about whether this very ancient story and ancient church could could have relevance for modern people um so so yeah interesting overlap my only marcus if you're listening please can you introduce a crash because trying to take a, one of the things that is very attractive about the the htb style is they always have crashes pretty much and also no one really cares if your toddler is screaming because it's so loud you can't hear them anyway yeah whereas taking a toddler to a very austere mm. sort of service is, is is fairly excruciating if you're the only one 
Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Like racing around trying to stop I, them knocking over the candles. I, f- I feel your pain, and there are there are you know hundreds of parents all over the country probably have been exactly the same position. Fortunately, if if my view is that you know a church should be able to cope with a screaming toddler once in a while. Um, otherwise, you know, otherwise it's not the church for me. The, the, the church at its glorious best is a bit messy, full of normal humanity. It's got glorious, aesthetically pleasing moments, but it also has all those, mum, a bit of mumbling into your hymn sheep and, and bad coffee at the end of the service. And that's okay because it's still one of the few places, I think, in our culture where you can get a bit of genuine community. And my my hope is that, it will always continue to do that in a culture where we're increasingly isolating ourselves from each other through technology. It feels like we need we need something like the church to that brings people together again. Mm. One of my um, regular listeners um, commented recently on the fact that he um, it's an intellectually disabled woman who goes to their church who recently was confirmed and he and his wife made her a cake and other people also sort of did celebratory things for her and she was so thrilled and it occurred to him that probably there's nowhere else in her life where she receives that degree of mm. Mm. kindness and hospitality because she's otherwise a very solitary person yeah and it's and likewise true. like there just isn't really a replacement yeah, yeah. And in, in my, in my, I'm married to a church minister in, in our denomination, and um, we often say the uh, the church feels kind of unique because when I, we look out at our congregation, you might have a 90 year old next to a three year old, and they might be talking to each other afterwards, mm-hmm. you know, over the coffee and cake. And it, it's very hard. There's very few places where that happens any longer, you know, where you get that intergenerational, mm. that, um, you know, people as well from very different backgrounds because. Um, I mean, church can inevitably, you know, be somewhat reflective of its local demography and everything else. But at its beating heart, I think the church has always been a place where actually the the master and the serf kind of both come and find themselves on equal ground. You know that that and there's a sort of a place in which there is a, you know, this this idea of this unity and diversity. Um, there's neither slave nor free. Um, male or female, Jew or Greek, as Paul put it, and and that's what the church is supposed to look like. This kind of um, uh, very, you know diverse place where different people meet around a shared unified thing, and uh, and that is that that is the dream. It doesn't always happen in reality, but uh, most churches I know give it a good shot. And as I say, I, I'd rather they were giving it a try than than them not existing. Right, that's a great note to end on. Let's talk after the break for the for pay subscribers about go back to new atheism because mm. I want to talk about their relationship with other faiths because it wasn't just a critique of Christianity, right? They also had mm. a sort of broader platform, whether or not they really um, follow through on that. But for everyone else who's listening, um, what is the title of your latest book? It's called The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God, Why New Atheism Grew Old and Secular Thinkers Are Considering Christianity Again. Um, there's going to be a podcast documentary series as well that I'm working on um, based off the book. So look out for that if you're a, a keen podcast listener, also called The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God. But if you want to follow, subscribe to get updates and so on, um, then justinbriley.com is the website. Okay. Thank you so much, Justin. Thank you, Louise. Thank you so much for watching that episode of Men, Mother, Matriarch and for all of your support. It means an enormous amount for the growth of the show. 
If you want to hear bonus content, an extra 20, 30 minutes of conversation with the guest, maybe a little bit more personal, a little bit less filtered, then you can go to my Substack at louiseperry.substack.com where you can sign up for extended episodes and also bonus episodes. And you can also access our chat community. You can also support the show by subscribing on YouTube or subscribing wherever you get your podcasts and rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts is also really great for encouraging other people to give the show a try. Please also spread the word, tell people that you know who you think might like it to give it, to give it a shot. Um, the word of mouth effect is really valuable, so we'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening, watching and supporting what we're doing. <laughs>